specialist police unit is investigating a series of letter bomb attacks in England and Wales. The latest bomb went off this morning at the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency in Swansea, the DVLA. Three members of staff were injured by the explosion. It brings the number of letter bomb explosions in the last five days to four. On Tuesday, a package exploded at a Berkshire accountancy firm, and on Monday, a similar device went off at Capita, the company which manages London's congestion charge scheme. Robert Watson is based at the DVLA's offices in Swansea, where the latest bomb went off. Well, there does seem to be someone possibly behind it with a grudge against the transport authorities because the DVLA being targeted uh, yesterday, an accountancy firm linked to a company which provides speed cameras to the police was targeted, and then Capita on Monday, which, amongst the many things that Capita does, runs the congestion charge scheme in London. of Clinton campaigned in New Hampshire over the weekend and faced questions about Iraq, while Senator Barack Obama drew cheers in Iowa for his opposition to the war. The weekend appearances gave the two campaigns a chance to road test their strategies for dealing with Iraq in the primaries and beyond. The people in Israel are wondering if you are elect president, are you going to be a big supporter of Israel like President Bush is, or are you going to exert a different uh, policy? Well, I think I have been and will continue to be a very strong supporter of Israel. Israel is our, our ally. Israel is a fellow democracy. Israel uh, has had bipartisan support from presidents of both parties, from Congresses, and from the American people since its founding. That will continue because we ultimately must let the world know that we stand with Israel, we guarantee Israel's security. Uh, that is a policy that will never change. Join me at this moment in history and welcome Barack Obama. I stand before you today announce my candidacy for President of the United States of America.
senior U.S. military officials in Baghdad put the evidence on the table, literally, to back up their claim that Iran is supplying Shiite extremist groups with deadly weapons. They spread out roadside bombs, mortar shells, and rocket-propelled grenades. The deadliest was a canister designed to explode and split out a molten ball of copper that can slice through armor. step-by-step deal that the Bush administration hopes will lead North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons program all but collapsed over the weekend. The talks are going into a fifth day on Monday. North Korea is demanding huge shipments of oil and electricity in return for sealing off its main nuclear reactor and letting international inspectors back in. let's get started. I'm definitely happy to be back with you guys, um, getting some feedback, uh, the good kind, not the bad kind, constructive criticism, destructive criticism, I'll take it all. <clears throat> we are on the learning curve here, and uh, I'm just, <laughs> I would say a little bit behind, but that's not true, I'm actually a lot bit behind. Uh, Mr. Beck, who's been handling Monday night for a little while, and uh, he, he's really gotten his pattern down, but uh, you can see him, or you can hear him, rather, on Monday night, the Monday edition of Free Talk Live. He always has some guests lined up. Until then, you can message me on Skype at VNN Free Talk Live. In the This Just In section of the forum, I have posted the uh, the, the beginning of the show notes to this show and from there there is a link from which you can directly message me if you have the Skype application uh, the telephone number is 660-675-4388 alright let's jump right in uh, there's some excitement about about uh, Iraqi patriots perhaps gaining some type of anti-aircraft capability Observers will note that it was the Mujahideen's anti-aircraft capability that drove the Russians out of Afghanistan, thanks to uh, our Director of Central Intelligence. It was a master stroke, actually, um, but this, this just came out an hour and a half ago, a, another crash. Uh, insurgent group linked to Al-Qaeda posted a video on Friday showing what it said was the downing of a U.S. military helicopter this week. Seven Americans were killed in the crash. The U.S. military said it does not believe the CH-46 Sea Knight helicopter was shot down in the crash Wednesday northeast of Baghdad, despite the video. The two-minute video, which says it shows the downing of a U.S. aircraft on February 7th, shows a helicopter that appears to be a Sea Knight flying 
An object trailing smoke is seen in the sky nearby, and then the craft bursts into orange and red flames with, spray of, with a spray of debris emerging from it. It is not clear whether the object is a rocket, and it cannot be clearly seen connecting with the craft. In the footage, the helicopter heads downwards but appears to be at least partially in control, though smoke and bright flames are trailing from it. The helicopter then disappears behind a line of trees as it hits the ground. The video was issued, issued by the, quote, Islamic State in Iraq, an umbrella group of Iraqi insurgent groups that includes al-Qaeda in Iraq. The group on Wednesday issued a written claim of responsibility for the craft's downing and promised a video would follow. And if that gets posted any time in the next couple of hours, uh, we'll be going over it here. The Islamic State in Iraq also claimed responsibility for the downing of two other U.S. helicopters, a Black Hawk, which crashed northeast of Baghdad on January 20th, killing 12 Americans, and an Apache shot down on February... That must, that's a typo. It should be January 12th, in which two U.S. soldiers died. At least six U.S. helicopters have crashed or have been forced down under hostile fire since January 20th. In the wake of recent crashes... U.S. officials have said they were reviewing flight operations and tactics, but maintain there is no evidence of sophisticated new weapons used in any of the latest attacks. As to what caused the crash, uh, a spokesman said, quote, There are some eyewitness accounts that cause professional aviation officers to believe it was most likely mechanical. Yes, it must have been something severed because it was hit by a missile. <clears throat> This was extremely interesting, I thought, for you 9-11 uh, truthers out there. There was uh, a, an article in the Jewish Forward that just came out, I believe, today, of Jews performing what I term a limited hangout on 9-11, which means they, they, they reel you out a little bit and they, they throw you a bone and then seek to ultimately just redirect you. Rabbi Michael Lerner, the longtime activist and editor of Tikkun magazine, has published an essay saying that he is open to the possibility that the American government may have been behind the September 11th terrorist attacks. I would not be surprised to learn that some branch of our government conspired either actively to promote or passively to allow the attacks of 9-11, Lerner wrote in an essay published in the new book, 9-11 in the American Empire, Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out. Lerner added that he would also not be surprised if it turned out that the attacks were not the result of a government conspiracy. I am agnostic on the question of what happened on 9-11, he wrote. As other authors in this collection have shown, there are huge holes in the official story and contradictions that suggest we do not know the whole story. Lerner, the founder of Deacon, and the newly formed Network of Spiritual Progressives, is arguably the most prominent contributor to 9-11 and American Empire. In the 1990s, he gained national attention after meeting with then-First Lady Hillary Clinton, during which they discussed his ideas about the need for a new politics of meaning. Since then, he has emerged as a leader of efforts to reconcile left-wing politics and religious belief, calling for a, are you sitting down, spiritual covenant to transform America. <laughs> All right, I, it, that's worth the price of admission alone. I do remember the politics of meaning, but I don't remember hearing anything about a spiritual covenant. 
The Berkeley, California-based Renewal Rabbi occupies a distinctive niche in the political landscape, keeping one foot planted in the Jewish community and the other in the world of left-wing activism. Maintaining credibility in both milieus has involved a delicate balancing act. Lerner, for instance, has been an outspoken critic of Israeli policies, but he also firmly defended Israel's right to exist. Recently, Lerner sent an email to supporters saying that he had recently spoken on the phone with former President Jimmy Carter in an effort to build support for a left-wing pro-Israel lobby to take on more hawkish elements of the Jewish community. I've had a lot of personal experience of government lying and doing things that are very destructive and pretending they weren't doing it, Lerner says. I was part of an anti-war demonstration in which violence was done and the violence later turned out it later turned out the violence was being done by police agents. I had that personal experience. After that, nothing surprises me about what this government would do to achieve what its perceived ends are. Nothing would surprise me. That doesn't mean I believe it. That doesn't mean that I believe that it's actually happening right now. And he he ends in his essay, Lerner argues that searching for conspiracies even whether there are real conspiracies, tend to be not politically, tend to not be politically useful. He wrote that focusing on conspiracy theories wrongly leads people to believe that quote, the major problems we face are those generated by evil people in powerful positions, not on something more systemic. Lerner wrote that September 11th conspiracy theorists should work to create a quote spiritual covenant. To, hear, to heal American society. While Lerner is willing, if only skeptically, to entertain those who posit a plot by the American government, he has no such indulgence for other popular conspiracy theories, namely that of Israel was behind the September 11th attacks. He said that whereas the Bush administration benefit, benefited politically from the attacks and thus had a plausible motivation, Israel had no such interest in seeing the attacks occur anything about Israel and the relationship to 9-11 is total baloney. Jews had nothing to gain from 9-11. You remember that. Or else. Or else what? Or else this. Germany's push, for, and I'm, I'm actually hearing uh, little ripples about this already. It's come up on the radar that they want to push 9-11 uh, conspiracy theories into the same realm as Holocaust denial, uh, including the way uh, those are treated by law in certain countries. This has been a hot topic on the forum. Uh, Germany's um, Merkel and Germany's uh, seat at the head of the UN now seems to be, they, they seem to be wanting to make the most out of their time. Uh, Germany's push for all European Union member states to adopt legislation criminalizing Holocaust denials is gaining traction as several key countries that express concern over potential free speech infringement have indicated a new willingness to join the effort. Berlin announced early this year that during its six-month presidency of the EU, it would press to make Holocaust denial punishable by law in each of the 27 member states. German officials have described their effort as a moral imperative as well as a practical effort to unify European legal standards on the issue. A similar attempt by Luxembourg 
in 2005 was blocked by Britain, Denmark, and Italy, three countries who saw the measures as overstepping the rights of expression under their respective national laws. But supporters of the campaign believe that new British laws against inciting terrorism, the controversy over the Danish cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, and the new government in Italy, as well as the backlash over statements questioning the Holocaust by Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, could lead to a successful outcome in the upcoming months. We are optimistic we will see a positive result, even if it is not a perfect one, said Pierre Bosanau, president of the European Jewish Congress, in an interview with The Forward. Our advocacy is for a pan-EU legislation. Uh, has Our advocacy for pan-EU legislation has been well received in various capitals, and we believed uh, Chancellor Merkel is determined to get it done. Among EU members, only Austria, Belgium, France, Germany, Poland, Romania, and Spain have laws specifically targeting Holocaust revisionism on the books, meaning that Berlin needs to convince 20 other countries to come aboard on July when it will relinquish the EU presidency. As a result of the disparity in EU legal standards, Holocaust denials have prosecuted in some countries while being left alone in others. The most high-profile case involved controversial British historian David Irving, who spent 13 months in an Austrian jail but faced no legal threat in his native country. Egads. The European Commission, the executive arm of the EU, is publicly supporting the Germans' initiative. Last month, on the eve of international commemorations to mark the Holocaust, EU Justice Commissioner Franco Frattini called on all member nations to, quote, finally adopt, and quote, tough new rules to criminalize incitement of hatred and acts of racist violence. The new German plan envisions the introduction of minimum EU-wide prison terms between one and three years for those convicted of purposefully inciting racist violence or hatred or for those who deny the Holocaust. Last month, German Justice Minister Brigitte Zybris expressed hopes that unifying EU legal standards regarding Holocaust denial and xenophobic acts was now possible because Italy had dropped its opposition. But Italy's stance is still ambiguous. The center-left government in Rome was set to include an explicit reference to Holocaust denial in a draft law imposing jail terms of up to four years for racist or ethnically motivated crimes on the advice of the bill's author, Italian Justice Minister Clementi Mastella, Jew. But the center-left coalition government heeded protests from several of its ministers, as well as from academics and even some Jewish leaders, who argued that jail time was not a proper way to address the issue. Rome's former chief rabbi, Elejo Toaf, who was tortured by the Nazis during the German occupation of Italy, publicly said he doubted the measure could stop anti-Semitism. Indeed. What's the quote from Goebbels? A, a law... A law... Um, oh, somebody help me out here. Somebody message me. <laughs> it's something like a law prohibiting criticism of the Jews is usually the last step before they're run out of the country. And that would seem to be about right. Or at least one would hope so. Several members of the Italian government expressed misgivings about using criminal procedures to deal with what they see primarily as a cultural and educational problem. Indeed. In addition, about 200 
Italian historians publicly argued that such laws could impinge on free speech, echoing an argument made by common law countries in the EU, first and foremost the United Kingdom. As a result of any remaining differences, Bessonau said that an agreement on criminalizing Holocaust denial in all the EU would be reached, but the tough jail sanctions proposed in Germany would be lessened. So there we go. Bad stuff for uh, for the Europe. And yes, I agree. The Israelis were Machiavelli. I agree that the Israelis were definitely <laughs> involved and had something to gain. I didn't mean to be ambiguous there. They definitely had something to gain from 9/11. They had everything to gain. And indeed, on the flip side, Muslims didn't really have anything to gain at all from it, now did they? Here's a good one. I totally missed this one. This happened earlier in the week. Uh, this is from uh, San Francisco. Uh, in a bizarre attack, there's that word, bizarre, a well-known author and Holocaust scholar was dragged out of a San Francisco hotel elevator by an apparent Holocaust denier who reportedly had been trailing him for weeks. Police escorted Eli Weasel to San Francisco International Airport on February the 1st after a man accosted Weasel in the elevator at the Argent Hotel at 53rd Street after Weasel participated in a panel discussion at a peace conference and before Weasel was scheduled to catch a flight back to New York. Weasel, a Holocaust survivor and author of more than 40 books, including the memoirs Night, wrote about his experiences in Auschwitz. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 86. Last fall, the Boston University professor was suggested as a possible replacement for Israeli President Moshe Katsav, who faces sexual assault charges. Police confirmed this week that the attack took place and that officers escorted Weasel to the airport following the attack. According to the police, the suspect accosted Weasel in the hotel at the elevator at around 6.30 p.m., saying he wanted to interview him. He gads. Weasel said he would do the interview in the lobby. That's when the attacker pulled him out of the elevator, police reported. In a posting Tuesday on the anti-Zionist website Ziopedia, a writer using the name Eric Hunt takes credit for the attack. Quote, After ensuring no women would be traumatized by what I had to do, I stopped the elevator at the sixth floor, pulled Weasel out of the elevator, and I said I wanted to interview him. Weasel grabbed at his chest and yelled for help, according to the posting. I told him, why don't you want people to know the truth? His expression changed, and he began screaming again. <laughs> the posting reads, police reported that the suspect tried to force Weasel into one of the rooms, but, ran but the suspect ran away when Weasel started yelling. The online posting states that the writer intended to bring Weasel to the hotel room, where he would truthfully answer my questions regarding the fact that his non-fiction Holocaust memoir, Night, is almost entirely fictitious. Later in the posting, the Holocaust is portrayed as a, quote, myth. Well, anyone who's read um, Night knows that there are, there are some myths in there, and I believe there's, there's at least one or two that, that, that have been admitted to, if I'm, not, if I'm not correct. I have some messages... And I'm, I'm going to play a clip from YouTube that I'm sure you will enjoy. And I'm going to probably spend a tune after that. I'm going to answer these messages. If you would like to join us on the show, 
The Skype ID is VNN Free Talk Live. One word, VNN Free Talk Live. The telephone number is area code 660-675-4388. And we'll be right back after this. That's what Daniel said. There's a battle going on inside of me between my well-crafted external persona and an internal force trying to break free. It's a battle, you see, between the nerd and the nigger in me. Can the nerd and the nigger coexist? They're going to have to, nerd. But nigger, it doesn't make sense. I didn't spend four years in the Ivy League learning how to think, talk, and feel in order to jump into a rage every time they try and kill me. But the truth is, nerd, I've always been around when that poison ivy bullshit was beating your ass down. These strong nigga arms, they held you, told you not to feel it, gave you time enough to heal it and become a nerd again. But nigga, <laughs> all you seem to feel is rage. And that will keep me out of their circles and off the front page of the New York Times and the Daily News. Not if you shoot a motherfucker. <laughs> and that's my point. You are more than that cold, stony glare, those weighty timberlands and that nappy hair. Oh, hold up now. No, nigga. That rage is like a cage that keeps love out and you in jail. Burning in nigga, thug nigga hell. Ah, oh, shut up, nerd. You ain't heard a word I said. I gotta smack you upside your well-brushed head. Without me, there is no you. Now, wait a second, nigga. Let's talk this through. <laughs> Nah, nerd, journey to the nigger in you. I've been silent long enough. I got your ass through school. Gave you time enough to learn they rules. Now the time has come for you to pay your dues. Because these little niggers in the street, they need you. But they think they can't relate because you act all removed. When the truth is, nerd, what they are is you. Because no matter how hard you try to deny the way you think, talk, and feel, your daddy still smoke heroin. Your brother still on crack. Ghetto nightmares still haunt your dreams and your mama is still black. I ain't saying you gotta become me, but this one thing is true. Inside you is a hard-ass nigga. You gotta let come through, because this assimilating bullshit will surely beat you down. And if you choke me long enough, my nerd, I will not stick around. Put the strut back in your walk. Say what you really feel. Be all of you, so all of us can heal. The time for lying and denying is through. It's time, nerd, journey to the nigger in you. Good evening. This is Dietrich. I'm glad to have you back. This is VNN's Free Talk Live Friday edition. You can contact the show via Skype. The ID is VNN Free Talk Live. That's one word. Telephone number is 660-675-4388. Us Yanks may have missed during the week over in Great Britain. Uh, some interesting stuff going on. I played a little clip of it before the show. For those of you, we've had a lot joining in since the beginning of the show. So for those of you that are just joining in, I like to play a, a clip. It's about 50 seconds long and uh, some pretty interesting stuff. There's some mail bombs going on. Uh, as most of you know, there's uh, over there they've had a lot of traffic cameras and just all kinds of cameras going in and uh, uh, just a, a really kind of technocratic tyranny going on with uh, the cameras and all the uh, they've started it out with the with the cars and uh, they they even have microphones on a few of them now it's really creepy but it sounds like somebody may be uh, fighting back a little bit I got this clip on from the BBC I believe on Wednesday yeah, that's what it says Wednesday and uh, well here have a listen what do you think 
specialist police unit is investigating a series of letter bomb attacks in England and Wales. The latest bomb went off this morning at the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency in Swansea, the DVLA. Three members of staff were injured by the explosion. It brings the number of letter bomb explosions in the last five days to four. On Tuesday, a package exploded at a Berkshire accountancy firm, and on Monday, a similar device went off at Capita, the company which manages London's congestion charge scheme. Robert Watson is based at the DVLA's offices in Swansea, where the latest bomb went off. Well, there does seem to be someone possibly behind it with a grudge against the transport authorities, because the DVLA being targeted uh, yesterday, an accountancy firm linked to a company which provides speed cameras to the police, was targeted, and then Capita on Monday, which, amongst the many things that Capita does, runs the congestion charge scheme in London. What is planned if not the coma? I thought that was pretty interesting. There's a there's somebody out there mailing letter bombs to the transport authority and to companies who are handling uh, the cameras and the, uh, uh, the the feeds of the cameras, the installation of the cameras. Uh, looks like a little bit of uh, uh, one-man insurgency. Uh, it appears that as as of today, there have been seven attacks uh, on different offices, and we'll be keeping an eye on that at VNN. You can check out the form at vnnforum.com or on the front page. Uh, we may have something about that there, and um, it's pretty interesting. The police are the police seem to be running around and don't really have anything. Don't really have any serious leads. They've arrested. One or two men, uh, one 48-year-old man who claimed that he sent one of the bombs. They arrested him under the Mental Health Act. Uh, the man apparently confessed, but uh, he may be a nutter, as we say. So, yeah, we're going to be keeping an eye on that there, because that could be somewhat interesting. On to the next topic, South Carolina, uh, South Carolina, South Africa, rather, faces crime challenge. Three weeks ago, President Thabo Mbeki insisted that most South Africans did not think the crime rate in their country was getting out of hand. Now, in his annual State of the Nation address to Parliament, he has admitted that people live in fear. He has promised an increase in police numbers. It is a turnaround which compares with his change of heart on AIDS. In a recent television interview, Mbeki said... No one can show that the overwhelming majority of the 40 or 50 million South Africans think that crime is out of control. The other night in Hillbro, the most crime-ridden area of Johannesburg, my camera team and I stood on the corner of Claim Street and Pretoria Street speaking to passers-by. An angry crowd built up so fast that our security man advised, advised us to leave. But there was no threat to us. They were desperate to talk about crime. Or maybe start some more. One man showed us the scars he received from a stabbing. Another said crime was overwhelming in Hillbrow. A woman told us she could not wear good earrings or good clothes for fear of being robbed. Two days later, a man was stabbed to death on the very corner where we had filmed. The government often suggests that only white people are worried about crime. Quote, they should get out if they don't like it, one minister said recently. Our experience showed that black people are just as frightened by it. Every day, more than 300 murders and violent attacks take place in South Africa. Together with Iraq and Colombia, it is one of the three most dangerous countries on Earth. But there are two important points to make. First, this is not a question of black versus white. 
Far more black people than white people are affected by crime, though the white population is certainly suffering heavily. And I think I'm just going to knock that one off there because I think, yeah, because I think it pretty much, this is a BBC article and it pretty much descends from there. Uh, it says that it's not a uh, black on white thing and then pretty much the rest of the article pretty much implies that it is a black on white thing. Um, it doesn't have to be though. Uh, the blacks are uh, way more prone to crime and whites are much less so. So it's there are going to be huge disparities and it means that we should not be under the same political system. The police should not have to treat us equally. Uh, I believe on one goy fire it was said that you can only really have innocent until proven guilty if basically everyone's innocent right so um, you know unless unless you have that you know, like in the Middle East they have far fewer problems they put their women under blankets and they chop off body parts when people steal or misbehave in some way and they don't allow alcohol so they've they've come up with cultural answers to those questions in South Africa what you're seeing is is nature reasserting itself almost as if uh, a civilization, one civilization has left and the, and the weeds are regrowing and reclaiming uh, the, the grass and the trees and the weeds and the and the, the flora and the fauna are reclaiming that which used to be a bustling uh, city, a business center one of the largest and most active economies on earth and now they're now it's a joke that they're going to try to hold the next World Cup there. It's not going to happen, or at least I don't, I don't see a way it's going to happen. But uh, they're years behind schedule and getting that stuff done. And, and you know, just on the security question alone, it's not going to, it's not going to be something that, uh, that happens. But I'll keep my eye on it for you. Speaking of crime, black crime in particular, we have another clip from the BBC. It was a good week at the BBC, I'll tell you, for, uh, for VNN Media, at least. It was a good week at the B at the BBC. Um, this one is, a, well, I'm just going to play this one. It's just too good to pass up. It's over seven years ago since Damilola Taylor was stabbed to death in Peckham. The ten-year-old bled to death in a stairwell. After that, millions of pounds were pumped into regenerating the area which is located in south-east London. But problems still remain. There have been three murders in Peckham in just four days, the most recent being a teenager shot dead in his bedroom. So what's behind the culture of violence? Here are the views of two teenagers living in Peckham, one aged 15, the other 16. Your friends with the peer pressure in certain schools you go to, like some schools you've got girls having sex in the toilets or doing whatever, it's not nice seeing 15, 16 year old kids doing them things in school. Basically like you're an adult before like you even turn like 15, 16, so I'm saying because like you've already seen lots of things happen, like seeing people... Now I want to stop this real quick. What, what it is that I want you to be listening for is um, these, these feral yardies uh, saying that these things are just happening, like it's a force of nature, that, oh, it just happens that these things are true and that, that these things occur. And, of course, the solution comes from the top down. It comes from the government having to 
tax people who can basically hold down jobs and uh, uh, and pay their taxes transferring to people who just can't behave themselves in a first world country it's yet more proof uh, for that uh, for which we agitate rushed on the street like if you walk down the road like you could get mugged yourself you see what I'm saying just run up and stab you for a phone if you've got headphones in your ear you see what I'm saying like, and that like, it's just another thing that like, it's a bit of a war zone that like, because all this gang on gang thing you see what I'm saying that like, and that like, there's people getting caught in the line of fire you see what I'm saying in the middle that like, there's yardy men going around on the street that like, like little school kids still in primary school that like, they're all shot in weed class A whatever you see what I'm saying that like, basically that like, what they're getting out of it in exchange is basically that like, to be able to walk around freely no one's going to trouble them that like, they've got a name for themselves that like, Two teenage residents living in Peckham. Operation Trident is a metropolitan police initiative which investigates black-on-black -black violence. Lee Jasper chairs the independent advisory group which monitors the unit's work. Sarah Montague spoke to him about the current situation in Peckham. There are uh, community organisations in partnership with local authorities, uh, such as Southwark and other areas of London, that are really pushing uh, for innovation uh, uh, and creativity in providing schemes that dissuade, pre prevent and deter young people getting involved in this crime. But we shouldn't underestimate the scale uh, of the problem. We've got large-scale educational failure uh, in some areas of London for uh, young uh, black uh, children. Uh, we've got far too few uh, positive role models in our society's failing our niggers in terms of uh, uh, fathers absent without leave and black teachers uh, standing in front of the uh, classroom teaching uh, and all of this provides a backdrop of uh, against high unemployment that makes this an enormously difficult task is it is it the problem getting worse because it's affecting younger people I think it's getting worse uh, ironically, by, uh, because of a byproduct of success, because Trident uh, and the Metropolitan Police Service have been uh, successful over the last few years on uh, tackling, arresting, charging and, and sending to prison. Uh, increasing numbers of uh, 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 people involved in these sorts of crimes. Our police force is failing our niggers. What it's meant that the average age profile of a Trident nominal has dropped from 24 some three, four years ago to the age of 17 today. Uh, and by taking out that top layer uh, of uh, older gang members, uh, they have now become replaced by a younger, more ruthless element. Replaced by a younger and more ruthless element. Go figure. And these things are always treated... Um, I encourage you to go to the Beeb and, and look up this report. You can search Trident and uh, the latest entry uh, with that result should be, uh, that should be your man. But uh, what's going on there is, I mean, it's, it, it's amazing. Anytime you listen or read the, the BBC, um, they are so much further along in some things that we are. That the government is always the, the response. The government's always sweeping in. And, or is expected to sweep in and just like fix things and what they don't understand is that society and uh, and political life it comes from the ground up it's an organic phenomenon um, you know the laws you hear it a lot in South Africa you know they well we're gonna put new procedures in place we're gonna, well if people don't know how to read the procedures if people aren't inclined to uh, want to follow the law uh, you can put all the text down on paper you wish. Uh, 
it's not it's not going to be very useful overall. But uh, let's move on. Uh, we have a clip here from Israel, or a story rather, from Israel. Uh, there's some uh, there's a border scuffle going on. This is the most action that's happened on the uh, the Lebanese Israeli border since uh, the clash last August or late last uh, summer. Lebanese PM blasts Israeli violation, but Israel says it's not seeking an escalation. The Jew cries as he kicks you. Israeli and Lebanese troops exchanged fire across the border late Wednesday night when the Lebanese troops shot at two Israeli bulldozers clearing mines at the blue line that separates the two countries. Haaretz reports that the Lebanese Prime Minister Faoud Sayonara said that the bulldozers crossed the blue line into Lebanese territory, which he called a violation that compounded the daily violations of Lebanese sovereignty by Israeli aircraft. Sayonara discussed the border clash with the UN envoy Guerre Pedersen, telling him that his government condemned what he described as the new Israeli aggression on Lebanon's sovereignty and what he called the violations of the blue line, the UN-recognized border between the two countries. Liam McDowell, a spokesman for the UN Interim Force in Lebanon, or UNIFIL, said the exchange was initiated by the Lebanese army and that the Israeli bulldozer had crossed the border fence, but not the blue line, to clear mines. Al Jazeera reporters write that the two bulldozers had not actually crossed the blue line, but had only crossed the fence on the Israeli side of the border. An Israeli tank fired on the Lebanese army position after the shooting started, but no one was hurt. Unifil said the bulldozers were apparently trying to clear mines that had been placed on the Israeli side of the border for defensive reasons. The security situation has been escalating in the area over the last couple of days following the testimony of Ehud Olmert, the Israeli Prime Minister, before the commission investigating last year's war. Olmert said one of the successes of the Israeli offensive was to drive Hezbollah forces away from the border. Zaina Kodar, Al Jazeera's correspondent in Lebanon, says that subsequently Hezbollah flags and signs can be seen frequently in the area as a demonstration that they will still have a strong pre presence and support in the border area. However, the Daily Star of Lebanon contradicts the Al Jazeera report, writing that the bombs exploded by, an Israel by the Israeli bulldozers had been seen on the Lebanese side of the Blue Line. Contrary to earlier reports, UNIFIL's assessment team and the Lebanese army said the devices were just north of the Blue Line, so Israeli fire had to cross the Blue Line in order to detonate the devices, which constitute, constitutes an Israeli violation of the ceasefire that ended the war. The Associated Press reports that UNIFIL troops had talked to senior officers on both sides of the incident and have since calmed them down. AP reports that the Israeli Defense Minister Amir Peretz Wednesday accused Syria of allowing Hezbollah to rearm itself in the region south of Lebanon, in the southern region of Lebanon, rather, and that Israel retained the right to act forcefully to counter the threat. The Jerusalem Post reports that the Syrian leader Bashar Assad at a two-day convention of the Ba'ath Party in Damascus, reiterated his regime's support of both Hezbollah and Hamas, but he did not specifically mention Mr. Peretz's accusations. Finally, Haratz reports that during a visit to London, Mr. Ulmert asked British Foreign Secretary Terry Margaret Beckett to enact a law preventing the arrest of Israeli military officers in British territory. According to a political source in Jerusalem, British authorities promised Israel roughly a year and a half ago that the country would enact a law similar to a Belgian law 
passed in the wake of the Belgian warrant issued for the arrest of then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. The Belgian law transferred the authority to issue arrest warrants for foreign citizens on accusations of war crimes from the courts to the government. Haaretz reports that Miss Beckett told Olmert that she would take care of the issue. Also, Indiana University professor Alan Rosenfeld recently wrote an essay posted by the American Jewish Committee, quote, Progressive Jewish Thought and the New Antisemitism, that accused liberal Jews, through their speaking and writing, of feeding a rise in virulent antisemitism by questioning whether Israel should even exist. The article had touched off a furious debate in Israel and the U.S. how how, over how critical anyone, be they Jewish or not, can be of Israel, Israeli government policy, and if such criticism is anti-Semitic. Following are articles from both sides of the debate. Yeah, I guess I could have cut that one, huh? Mm, yeah, but basically, the, what it what appears to be happening here is, uh, <laughs> yeah, what appears to be happening here is that uh, there, Israel admits to clearing mines that apparently is the case uh, that could the only real reason to clear defensively laid mines is uh, if you're going to go back over so um, and at the same time they, it could be that they're indeed trying to uh, provoke provoke some kind of uh, escalation in order to uh, so, so they, they may be wanting uh, another piece of Lebanon now that they've uh, licked their wounds and uh, made the accusations back and forth. They fired their defense minister, and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. There's a, there's a lot of fallout from that that we don't really get in our news, uh, but that is coming to uh, more or less coming to a close, and they're uh, moving on. And so it seems like they may be wanting to ramp this thing back up, and uh, so we'll keep a close eye on that for you. The best article of the article of the week, I would have to say, was at antiwar.com, of all places. It's called, and I'm so thankful that I've got some more people. Uh, it seems like every day more people are catching on uh, to what I've been saying now for a long time, that the goal in Iraq has been to break up the country from the get-go. Uh, it's been there to cause sectarian violence. There's no other reason to kick out the tent pole that was holding up uh, the whole central uh, central Arab lands uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That that's a, uh, a meeting of uh, three, at least three, very uh, seriously uh, three three factions that are seriously at odds with one another, and left to their own vice devices, they would be just as happy to fight them as they are Israel and we're obliging them in that the article is as follows the title is How Neocon Shiite Strategy Led to Sectarian War by Gareth Porter the, the supreme irony of President George W. Bush's campaign to blame Iran for the sectarian civil war in Iraq as well as the attacks on the US forces is that the Shiite militias who started the drive started to drive the Sunnis out of the Baghdad area in 2004 and thus precipitated the present, present sectarian crisis did so with the support of both Iran and the neoconservative U.S. war planners. Are you listening? The U.S. policy decisions 
that led to the sectarian war can be traced back to the conviction of a group of right-wing zealots with close ties to Israel's Likud party that overwhelming the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq would not destabilize the region because Iraqi Shiites would be the allies of the United States and Israel against Iran. The idea that Iraqi Shiites could be used to advance U.S. power interests in the Middle East was part of a broader right-wing strategy for joint U.S.-Israeli rollback of Israel's enemies. In 1996, a task force at the right-wing Israeli think tank, the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies under Richard Pearl, advised Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that such a strategy should begin by taking control of Iraq and putting a pro-Israeli regime in power there. Uh, You have to sort of read between the lines here. Do you really think that a pro-Israeli regime is going to go in Iraq or that the the Shia in Iraq are for some reason going to fight the Shia in Iran? Uh, They would. If no one else was there, they would, but they have bigger fish to fry, uh, one of them being uh, Zog's soldiers flying around and shooting up the place. Three years later, the former director of that think tank, David Wormser, who had migrated to the neoconservative American Enterprise Institute, spelled out how the United States could use Iraqi Shiites to support the strategy in tyranny's ally. Wormser sought to refute the realist argument that overthrowing Saddam Hussein would destroy the balance of power between Sunni-controlled Iraq and Shiite Iran, in which regional stability depended. Wormser proposed replacing the existing dual containment policy towards Iran and Iraq with what he called dual rollback. He did not deny that taking down Hussein's regime would generate upheaval in Iraq, but that, but that he welcomed that prospect, which would offer the oppressed minority Shiites of the country, majority Shiites rather, of that country an opportunity to enhance their power and prestige. Whereas the realists had assumed that Iraqi Shiites would be Iran's fifth column, Wormser argued that the Iraqi Shiite clerics would present a challenge to Iran's influence and revolution. He cited their rejection of the central concept of the Iranian revolution of Ayatollah Khomeini, the rule of the jurisprudent justifying clerical rule. Clerical rule. From that fact, Wormser leapt to the conclusion that Iraqi Shiites would only be an ally of the United States in promoting a regional rollback of Shiite fundamentalism. Wormser even suggested that Iraqi Shiites could help pry Lebanese Shiites, with whom they had enjoyed close ties historically, away from the influence of Hezbollah in Iran. Which, that would be a possibility, but uh, the sentiment here, the basic sentiment here, is that this was planned that uh, this was meant to happen from the get-go. There's, there's, no, there's no way um, that it can be... The, the analysis can't be, in good faith, the analysis can't be that we expected this to work after kicking out Saddam Hussein. Um, he, he was too well entrenched, and that's why he was on our payroll, in fact, because he had it handled. And when when you when you kick that out, um, there's there's no reason to expect that anyone that understands what's going on over there, or that understands anything historically about the region or the parties involved, would do anything but uh, fight with one another and have a huge uh, that th- there would be a huge.
political problem and, uh, that that you that needed violence as a solution, and uh, that's exactly what you see here. We have uh, the United States has positioned itself as uh, it, it's in the perfect position. The largest enemies in Iraq are people like Mutada al-Sadr, and he is trying desperately to keep the country together. So whereas it would seem uh, the, the hard part would be to, to keep it together. That's the hard part. And that's what, like in Vietnam, that's what we were guilty of trying to do, just hold everything together politically, while it's very easy just to come in and as a terrorist and blow something up and, uh, and upset something. It's much harder to build than it is to destroy, uh, is the basic sentiment. And so we've put ourselves in the advantageous role of wanting to be the destructor of Iraq, whereas our enemies, the Iraqi patriots, uh, for instance, Muqtada al-Sadr, the Badr brigades, those guys want to hold it together, and uh, they're very likely not going to be able to. My analysis is that the U.S. continues its pro-Iranian shift. The marriage of U.S. and Iranian destinies in Iraq continued last week, with Speaker Nancy Pelosi refusing to meet with Turkish Foreign Minister Abdullah Gul. Pelosi's snub and the increasing talk one hears in the U.S. media and the halls of Congress about the, quote, Armenian genocide are indicative of Turkey's obvious loss of influence. The break with Turkey will be nearly complete once we begin seeing a congressional condemnation on the Armenian genocide later this session. That's just what I think. The way the State Department sees it, the alliance with Turkey is a relic of the Cold War, where the Turks uh, were strong anti-communists and moderate Muslims. Moreover, the Turks were they were unable to deliver their bases for use in uh, the, the northern invasion route into Iraq in 2003 because their parliament insisted on voting and, and listening to their uh, population. There were huge demonstrations. Uh, the United States really uh, they took the Turks for granted and uh, got burned. It was quite embarrassing for everyone involved. Uh, Turkish parliament has stripped away just enough power from the military who uh, is under the ownership of the United States military, by the way, in case you don't know that. Uh, but they, they've, the political leadership over there has, has been able to, to leverage uh, popular sentiment and, and the media to, uh, to parlay. Uh, they've, they've parlayed some of that political power into uh, usurping the uh, the direct, the very real power that the military has to to bring violence and drop bombs and knock over the uh, the actual government, uh, which which is a great thing for the Turks. Uh, but uh, due to that, they're simply not as useful to the United States as they as they were before, and that plays a big role in this. We've we've uh, we had an ally, a NATO ally, all through the Cold War, Turkey. Uh, we are trading Turkey for Iran, and only time will tell if I'm right. But I, uh, I believe there's a lot, there, there's a lot uh, riding behind that uh, analysis. It was always a delicate uh, and unpleasant balancing act between uh, the Kurds, who, uh, who who have been our buddies since the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much, and the Turks. 
Turkey hosts, uh, the Kurds are the largest ethnic group in um, Central and Southwest Asia that, that do not have a country. And uh, Turkey hosts a large Kurdish minority who have kept up a low-grade insurgency for decades. The Turks have um, at times been very brutal in suppressing the Kurdish ambitions for their own land. They've sent helicopter gunships paid for by uh, and provided by the United States to mow down our buddies, the Kurds. So when they cross the Turkish border, they become bad guys. The same people in northern Iraq um, are some of our most stalwart friends. Oddly enough, the U.S. has stayed out of this struggle, except for the provisions and, and uh, no doubt satellite uh, recon support and things like that, but it appears that the U.S. is now ready to visibly throw its lot in with the Kurds. The Turkish foreign minister visited the U.S. in order to ask for a postponement of a Kurdish referendum on Kirkuk, uh, which is a city in central, north-central Iraq uh, that holds about 40% of the entire country's oil reserves. Uh, but Basra, the Basra area in the south, holds about another 40%. So between the two, that's 80% of Iraq's proven reserves. The rest of the country doesn't really have much significant, uh, anything of significance. That includes Baghdad, oddly enough. But another sign that the Turks have lost out in Washington is in Washington's refusal to postpone this December's Kurdish referendum in Iraq that will bring the Kurds ever closer, closer to an autonomous state. This will enrage both the Turks and the Iraqi resistance. The referendum is the, about the destiny of oil-rich Kirkuk, well, where Kurdish control is rather weak, yet they claim it, citing their traditional control of the city. Uh, it's about like the U.S. abruptly reasserting control over an area like Los Angeles. Uh, the Mexicans both claimed it and had a much larger military. Uh, U.S. support of both the Kirkuk referendum and the Iranian and Kurdish veto of the Iraqi government's petroleum law implies that oil-rich areas of Kirkuk and Basra will be taken by the Kurds and the Iranians respectively and the rest of the country will be thrown to the wind. The Turks and the Syrians also lose since their respective rivals gain stronger footholds against them. Look for a regional conference in Baghdad taking place this spring. Iraq's internal politics are currently a mess and the situation is getting worse by the week. The U.S. is serving as a destabilizing force on all sides. Uh, and in my notes, I ask the question, how does one get the Syrians, Iranians, Turks, and Lebanese to pay attention to something other than Israel? Well, you do it just like this. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Dietrich on the Friday night edition of VNN's Free Talk Live. Hit me on Skype. The idea is VNN Free Talk Live. We'll be back in just a moment. This is D. 
Dietrich with the Friday night edition of VNN's Free Talk Live. Glad to have you back. Glad to be back. Stay tuned later for some announcements for next week. Um, next for next week's edition of Free Talk Live. I have one or two things to say about that before I log off to check my email and make sure that I'll be telling telling you the right things. But I may be going next week just for one week. I hope not though. I hope it won't be next week. Maybe the week after. I'll miss you guys. This is really fun. It's gotten fun now. You guys should um you guys should contact one of us here in the forum. Uh, it's gotten it's gotten a lot easier, and uh, it's 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 getting down to, to how well you can speak, obviously, and and for me that's not very well. So uh, if you can play music on your computer, uh, if you can read stories or talk politics, if you have something to say, message one of us on the forum. Message message Jeff or myself. Uh, we would love to bring you up to speed. We want more live broadcasts. You'd be surprised uh, as much as I stutter and stumble and misread and mispronounce and get things wrong. Uh, as much as all that happens, uh, blast your ears off sometimes with uh, miscued uh, volume. Uh, people still love it. I get messages all the time. I get positive feedback all the time. I get some not so positive, but it's always helpful. Uh, my blog is theseus.wordpress.com. I have a, uh, a forum link there, or a, a messaging link, rather, where you can uh, make a comment on the show, or uh, send me some criticism, or give me, uh, or have some ideas. If you have a show idea, hit that link, or message me uh, for the next couple hours, I'll be on Skype at VNN Free Talk Live. Also, if you'd like to be on the show, you can as well message VNN Free Talk Live on Skype. That's the Skype ID. The telephone number, if you have the old-fashioned landline or wireless, whatever. telephone. If it's on the telephone system, it'll work. Area code 660-675-4388. Iran says 100 spies working for U.S. and Israel identified from the French press agency. Uh, this came out yesterday out of uh, Tehran. Uh, Iran said is that it has identified 100 spies working for the United States and Israel in border areas of the Islamic State. 100 people were directly working for the U.S. and Israeli intelligence who were intended to collect political and military information were identified and now in our intelligence net. Intelligence Minister Golam Hossein Moshani, a long name, was quoted as saying, The minister added that a number of Iranians who wanted to take part in spying courses abroad had also been arrested, the semi-official Farce News Agency reported Thursday. We were able to identify and arrest all those who wanted to take part in espionage um, and taking uh, under the guise of taking part in educational courses. Um, Early last month, Iranian MP Ahmad Tavakoli said that Iran had arrested a spy working in Parliament's research center who had been passing information on its nuclear program to outlawed armed opposition group, People's Mujahideen. 
Iranian authorities claim that the United States supports armed groups in the country's border provinces whose population includes Kurb, Arab, or Baluch ethnic minorities. I'll tell you who else were supporting in Iran, which tends to surprise people if you don't really know what's going on. We're supporting a group who calls themselves the MEK. If uh, the MEK, if I'm not, uh, if I recall correctly, and they are a radical Islamist group who uh, they're also Marxists, and the neocons love them, absolutely love them. I'll put a, a link to some stuff in the show notes. Uh, it's it's kind of sickening, you know. If you <laughs> if you're still on the page that says that we we're all for democracy in the Middle East, uh, you need to know some of these people that we're supporting over there. Are, uh, man, I mean, it's, yeah, it's real politic, but uh, what's the goal? The only thing that really makes sense, I mean, I've had such a really hard time with this, but the, the only thing that really makes sense, the end game over there, what are we going for? Why are we doing these things? Why are we saying that we're uh, in the media? Why are we telling people that we're at the throats with the Iranians? And, uh, at the same time, we're working with them, inviting them into Basra and, uh, to make sense of these things. But just, uh, just, just digest that a little bit, that we are supporting a radical Marxist Islamist group in Iran. Uh, and they're the neocons' uh, favorite pets at the moment. Uh, and they are against any type of liberal reform. They're against the Iranian government but they're a dangerous and violent destabilizing force. So what are we trying to do over there besides depopulate the region? Here's one from the New York Times. This caught my uh, from being a future uh, Ameriquan expat. Uh, articles like this catch my eye more and more. Benedict Thoma recalls the moment he began to think seriously about leaving Germany. It was 2004 at a New Year's Day reception in nearby Frankfurt, and the guest speaker, a prominent politician, was lamenting the fact that every year thousands of educated Germans turned their back on their homeland. In December, as his work with the company became an intolerable grind because of labor disputes, Mr. Thoma quit and made plans to move to Canada. In its wide-open spaces, he hopes to find a future that he says is dwindling at home. As soon as he lands a job, Mr. Toma, his wife Petra, and their two teenage sons will join the ranks of Germany's emigrants. There has been a steady exodus over the years, but it has recently become topic A in a land already settled with one of the most rapidly aging and shrinking populations of any Western nation. With evidence that more professionals are leaving now than in past years, politicians and business executives warn about the loss of their country's best and brightest. The trigger for this latest bout of angst was the release last fall of a new government statistic showing that 144,800 Germans emigrated in 2005, up from 109,000 in 2001. At the same time, only 128,000 Germans returned, a decline of nearly 50,000 from the year before. That made it the first year in nearly four decades that more people left than came home. Demographic experts also say that the nature of the immigrants is changing. Those 
Those are not just young and unskilled workers like those who fled the economically blighted eastern part of Germany after the country was reunified in 1990 to work in the restaurants in Austria or Switzerland. They're doctors, engineers, architects, and scientists, just the sort of highly educated professionals that Germany needs to compete with economic up-and-comers like China and India. Other experts contend, though, that such fears are overblown. Germany has long sent its scientists and engineers to work or study abroad, they say, with the number of returnees historically balancing out those who leave. The latest statistics merely reflect on acceleration of that trend as German academia and industry adjust to an increasingly global economy. The numbers, she said, may also overstate the incidence of brain drain because they do not distinguish between native and naturalized Germans. For example, Turkish guest workers who adopt German citizenship and later go home are classified as German immigrants. Germany is, is the only other EU country uh, losing people. Uh, Germany, excuse me, is not the only European country losing people. Nicolas Sarkozy, the conservative presidential candidate in France, recently held a rally in London, home to 300,000 French citizens living in Britain, urging them to return and, quote, make France a great nation. The number of French citizens living in Britain jumped 8.4% in 2005 alone, according to government statistics. But the total number of French living outside of the country grew by only 1.2%, or 15,300 people, roughly equivalent to Germany's net loss of about 16,000 citizens. Caveats aside, there are plenty of anecdotal evidence that Germany has become less attractive for people in fields like medicine, academic research, and engineering. Those who leave cite chronic unemployment, a rigid labor market, stifling bureaucracy, high taxes, and the plotting economy, which, though better recently, still lags behind that of the United States. It must be a catch-22 for the managers of our decline that they're trying to pack our countries full of, uh, of refuse from the third world, and yet it's uh, they don't mention it in this article, but in my experience, even when you speak with people who do tend to be more mainstream and politically correct, is that once you get to the bottom of what, why it is that they're leaving, it it is. It's, it's immigrants. It's the fact that they don't feel like they have a country. Uh, there, there's a lot to it. I, I may do a show on that because uh, I myself, my wife and I are leaving for that for those specific reasons. I don't feel like I have a country. My citizen, I want to go somewhere where my citizenship means something. I mean, they may sound hokey and idealistic, but it has some very, uh, it, it has some very real uh, manifestations of it that that, that in real life, uh, you know, being an American just doesn't mean anything ultimately. Uh, if anyone can come across the border and uh, take our jobs. The government's not being run in the interests of its of the people, governed by the consent of the people. Uh, it's it's illegitimate, and uh, as as long as we have a, a government that's willing to to sell out our people for the bottom line, none of us have a country, none of us have uh, a home, and uh, who can live in an idea anyway? You know, they say America is an idea. Who can, uh, you know, what idea is an abode anyway? Ideas change. Ideas mean certain... Ideas sometimes mean more at certain points than they do at other times. Uh, 
whether it's a pertinent idea. And uh, it's the only comfort I really have, and this is the way I put it, the only real comfort that, uh, that I personally have, um, as sad as it is, that is that these things were already well entrenched and well in place before I was born uh, in 1976. These things were already, this was already all in the cards, but uh, I would encourage all uh, fellow Americans to uh, mull that over and to uh, really, and if you have to intellectualize it or uh, if you have to really sit down and realize it, that this, we have no claim over the United States anymore. It's in name only. It's and the colors of the flag are the it's it's all it's in the shape of everything. But what it actually is is long, long gone. And your citizenship here just means that you're here. That's all it means. There there is nothing else to it. It isn't the fact that our ancestors cleared off this land and worked and were simple law-abiding people and died in the wars and fought fought in the wars, fought and died in the wars and, and made it great. There's no claim that we have to that anymore. It's long gone. And that's why conservatism is, uh, is so very much a failure. Because we're only losing slower. Uh, stop digging your heels in and, uh, and, and help us push. We're, 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 this thing's moving forward and uh, the very least one should do is get out of its way but we're hoping that at VNN we're hoping that you join us and help us push and uh, so we won't end up like uh, well we already are but countries like Germany are presenting and the United States from, from what I'm reading and I am, I am going to do a show on this because I think it's it's kind of prescient, you know. It's it's flooring that people are are leaving these countries when we've tried, we've traditionally had um, such a steady influx incoming. Well, the people, more and more, for countries like the United States and the countries in Europe, and uh, it was just, I believe it was Free Talk Live two weeks ago on Friday that we were talking about the same story here in uh, Great Britain where people were leaving and they were going to places like New Zealand and Australia um, when your country sells you out th there's not really a whole lot more you can do about it um, you can you can fight it and uh, or, or you can or you can leave you can fight another day I don't know I don't know Wh what do you do message me being in free talk live if any of you guys uh, thought about leaving or are planning to leave I know I am. Uh, I'm, I'm actively planning to leave. Uh, you know, what else can you do? You know, there are uh, apparently there are active ways and passive ways to fight. I understand. That's the way I look at stuff, it. Alex. Doesn't sound right, so. Hey, <laughs> you know, and I'm not done. You know, the, we can't use our own advanced imagination, our excessive creativity, imagination, uh, and and wonder to be perverted 
into something that then attacks us, and that's exactly what they're doing. Well, you have to resist it. Hey, Sounds fuck like them. I don't care what other fucking people think. You're I know what the hell's right. I can use my now. brain and come to a conclusion. I don't have to do what these goddamn kikes say. Who the fuck can charge them anyway? They have what are they doing in our country? <laughs> you want to fight back? <laughs> yeah, I want to fight back. And there's many ways to fight back. You can fight back by, there's passive ways and there's, there's active ways. Some of the passive ways are, are not buying stuff, staying out of debt. Uh, active ways are having kids or, or getting a nuclear weapon and blowing up New York. 